Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the nation's death toll from the coronavirus is approaching 200,000 lives. Experts are predicting America's death toll at the end of the year could reach 400,000. In the meantime, hospitals should be preparing for an onslaught of Medicare audits. Auditors are moving full steam ahead using data and analytics to assess overpayments by way of automated reviews. This, according to Sean Weiss, who's standing by to report our lead story. Also on today's broadcast, former CMS official Matthew Albright has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday RAC report. Susan Gatehouse is standing by to provide comment and context to the news of increased auditing. And Alan Fink-Samnick reports the latest news on the social determinants for health. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. CMS last week finalized a new radiation oncology payment demonstration project, a mandatory program for 30% of all radiation therapy providers that starts January 1st. This model was created because data indicated that freestanding radiation centers were providing more costly treatment than hospital-based centers, suggesting that patients were getting unnecessary care. Now, payments can be based on a 90-day episode of care, regardless of the number or type of treatments. In simple terms, rather than paying for each treatment where providers get paid more for doing more, they get a fixed payment for the whole 90 days. CMS is also imposing site neutrality for payment, so hospitals will be paid the same as freestanding centers. Of course, CMS will be monitoring to ensure patients get the care they need, and they specifically forbid cherry-picking and lemon-dropping. CMS is continually trying to move from value, excuse me, from volume to value, and we'll see how this latest attempt works out. Now, I also have a little bit of RAC news this week. The RACs have asked CMS permission to audit inpatient claims for placement of defibrillators for medical necessity of the device. Now, they're already approved to audit outpatient claims, but let me break this down a little bit. First, trying to understand the thought processes of the RACs is almost as dangerous as trying to understand the CMS thought process. Let me take a stab at it. Outpatient placements are a much more controlled environment. There's time to ensure the patient meets the NCD. So the opportunity for denials is less, and they did not get as much money as they had hoped. On the other hand, with inpatients, the patient's often hospitalized for their first heart failure exacerbation. They're seeing a hospitalist, a cardiologist, an electrophysiologist. A ton of tests are being done, and before anybody looks, the patient's on the OR schedule for a defibrillator placement. There's no check to ensure the ejection fraction is below the required value. There's no check to see if the patient has been on optimal medical therapy, and there's no check to see if a formal shared decision-making visit has occurred. In other words, this should be much easier pickings for the RACs. Now, payment for DRG245 
ranges from $30,000 to $70,000. So that'll be a very painful denial. And remember, you can't go and ask the patient to give you the defibrillator back and return it to the manufacturer for a refund if you get a denial. So if you haven't been reviewing your process to ensure every defibrillator placement meets the guidelines, now is the time. Finally, last week I talked about the need for a positive COVID test to get the added 20% DRG payment. CMS has clarified, that, clarified to me that you must have the actual test and not simply documentation the test was positive. They also instructed hospitals that if you don't have that test result, you should enter a billing code NTE02, no pause test, on the electronic claim. Now, anyone want to bet that the MACs won't process these claims properly? You better audit your payments carefully or the OIG will do it for you. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you. And hi, happy Rack Monitor Monday. We all know about rack audits, but who has heard of what I have dubbed the reverse rack audit? It's when you, the healthcare provider, is owed money. It can be payments were erroneously denied, reimbursement rates were miscalculated, or simple computer glitches. How do you get money from the government? or worse yet, from an MCO or quasi-private company contracted by your state agency to manage That is the situation on a broad scale happening right now in New York State. I was originally approached by seven social adult daycare centers because the 17 MLTCs were failing to abide by the executive orders from Governor Cuomo, requiring the MLTCs to pay the same reimbursement rate for telehealth social adult daycare as physical social adult daycare services. We attorneys call that reimbursement rate parity. Numerous other social adult daycare centers have approached us with the same problem. The 17 MLTCs, the managed care organizations, simply stopped paying reimbursement rates amidst the COVID pandemic. We all know that the COVID PHE was issued March 13th being effective the first and is ongoing until, for now, October 23rd, 2020, and we will then see whether PHE continues. When COVID became rampant, especially in New York, which may have been hit the hardest by COVID, immediately the elderly who depended on social adult daycare services for mental health, substance abuse therapy, and physical therapy, immediately ceased attending the daycare centers out of fear. All the social adult daycare centers were on the brink of financial ruin. Then Governor Cuomo issued an executive order requiring that the MLTCs pay the social adult daycare centers for telehealth services at the same rate as for the physical. Remember, reimbursement rate parity for a reverse rack audit. The MLTCs refused in direct contravention of Governor Cuomo's executive orders. We are currently in the process of trying to negotiate with these 17 MLTCs, with so many different providers using one or all of these different individual companies. You can imagine that each client wants us to negotiate with their MLTC first. My team has been working diligently, and we had great news this past Friday. One of my clients was paid $200,000 
and it was appropriately on his Jewish holiday. We have quibbles about whether the amount was enough, but hey, we're just at the negotiation stage. I'd expect litigation to follow if negotiations turn out to be fruitless. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, Sean Weiss is standing by to report our lead story, and Susan Gatehouse. This is Monday. It's September the 21st, 2020, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. The coronavirus pandemic has forced the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to issue regulatory waivers, relieving providers of adherence to strict regulations regarding Medicare policies and payments. But navigating those waivers requires knowledge and specialized information, information that can only be found at the Auditor Monitor. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the Rack University Bookstore, order your subscription today, and start receiving your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So Beth works for a system in Florida that I'm lucky enough to represent. And she keeps asking me really good questions that make for great segments. And here's the latest. If a teaching physician co-signs a resident's note, is that documentation sufficient to permit the teaching physician to bill? My immediate reaction was that the signature is insufficient. I believed that an explicit statement from either the physician, resident, or a nurse or some other observer was required. But to confirm that thinking, I grabbed the regulation. After studying it, I think I was wrong, and there's a cogent argument that co-signature is, in fact, enough. From a risk management standpoint, it's clearly superior to have someone, the physician, the resident, the nurse, anyone who's involved in the care, explicitly state that the teaching physician was present. But the plain text of the regulation suggests that the signature suffices. Remember that the regulations were changed in the 2019 physician fee schedule. So um, Emily's going to put the language up for those of you who are watching live. If you're uh, watching remote, you probably want to Google the regulation, which is 42 CFR 415172. It states that the presence of the teaching physician during procedures and evaluation and management services may be demonstrated by the notes in the medical record made by the physician or as provided in 41020E of this chapter. So this regulation offers two angles supporting the idea that a signature alone is enough. First, it uses that word may rather than the more limiting must. May is permissive and suggests that other methods of demonstrating involvement are adequate. Second, let's look at 41020E. That provision was also newly added in the 2019 fee schedule, and it states that, quote, the physician may review and verify, parentheses, sign slash date, rather than redocument notes in the patient's medical record made by physicians, residents, nurses, etc., including, as applicable, notes documenting the physician's presence and participation in the services. 
Now, that language states that signing and dating a document verifies it. That sounds pretty promising. It makes it sound like the signature is sufficient verification. Now, to be clear, there are counterarguments. For example, when the rule was issued, the preamble included a statement that the physician should further document in the medical record if the notations by other professionals did not accurately demonstrate the physician's involvement. While the preamble text isn't binding in the same way a regulation is, it indicates that CMS wants to see more than a signature alone. Without a doubt, the smartest thing to do is to include an explicit statement by someone confirming that the teaching physician personally saw the, face, saw the patient or the patient. But if the teaching physician has co-signed the document and indicated that that co-signature is used to verify their involvement, I would not refund the money from the encounter. Best practices are not the same as legal requirements. I'm only going to recommend a refund when there's no good argument to defend a claim. Both regulations here supply cogent arguments that the signature suffices, especially if you're confident that the physician did, in fact, see the patient. So the bottom line is that it's best if the resident paraphrases, if we're going to do 80s, Tiffany, saying something like, I saw him standing there. If we've got a female physician or you're a 60s fan, we can go with the Beatles original. I saw her standing there. But if all you've got is a signature, well then let's go with Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush. Don't give up. You're not beaten yet. Don't give up. You're not beaten yet. Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. Amid the perils of the pandemic are now growing concerns about food shortages around the country. Since COVID started, the U.S. Census has been tracking the impact of the economic crisis on the public. The numbers and associated impact are important for healthcare organizations to keep an eye on, especially as they consider what social determinants of health initiatives mandate priority. States around the country are struggling to level set Food security is divided into two categories. Low food security, quality, variety, or desired foods are reduced by necessity. However, low food security is linked to little or no pairing back in food intake. Then there's very low food security. Multiple indicators of disrupted eating patterns, for example, having no food in the fridge, reduced food intake from not having access to food. Many states and regions were considered food deserts, but the increase in these areas is evoking major concern. Washington, D.C., my home turf, had close to one quarter of all families reporting or expecting to lose employment income in September, with 28% of families reporting trouble paying for regular household expenses, including food. 
Prior to the start of the pandemic, roughly 400,000 people around the tri-state areas of Maryland, the District of Columbia, and Virginia were food insecure. However, the number has now increased by 200,000 in recent months. Even the most affluent counties have seen close to a 20% increase in the amount of food donated. That number disappears in hours. Shelters and poor pantries are on overload. My prior Monitor Monday broadcast reported how families in Houston and around Texas are struggling with the social determinants. Food security now putting families at greater health risks. 25% of families are food insecure households, with the number expected to rise by another 5% in the next month. In Chicago, almost 15% of residents are food insecure, with 20% of these households having children. Washington State is also on alert. Not only did they have to deal with the perils of the fires last week, but food insecurity has increased dramatically in that region, with hunger now a major priority. Up to 51% of black families and 33.4% of Latinx families are dealing with food insecurity. White families are seeing rates at close to 20%. Adult obesity is up to record levels across the country. The average over 40% related to limited access to fresh produce and vegetables in many regions, plus decreased activity levels courtesy of public health precautions and having to shelter in place. With every healthcare community recognizing that food is indeed medicine, our Monitor Monday survey this week asked, does your organization have a program in place to address food insecurity? A simple yes or no, or maybe you do not know. Inquiring minds can't wait to see the outcomes. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author Alan Finksandwick, and Alan said we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on Friday. Ginsburg was the second woman appointed to the Supreme Court. She served for 27 years on the nation's highest court. We mourn her loss, and as a country, we are grateful for her service. Although we are likely to hear nothing out of Washington for the next week except about the Supreme Court, Congress is actually closer than it has been in weeks to agreeing on another, another COVID-19 relief package. A bipartisan group of 50 House lawmakers released a $1.5 trillion stimulus plan last Tuesday. That $1.5 trillion splits the difference between the White House and the Democrats' proposed funding numbers. At the same time, Speaker Pelosi says that the House is going to stay in town and not take an October recess until a deal gets done. In other federal news, agencies and government officials continue to send different signals on COVID-19 testing. On the one hand, elements of the federal government are urging widespread testing as a way of gaining more knowledge about the spread of the pandemic. For instance, the FDA has so far authorized nearly 250 different COVID tests, and the White House has ordered and received 150 million rapid COVID-19 tests in order to, quote, get Americans back to work and kids back to school. 
HHS sent those tests to 12,000 different sites this past Friday, including assisted living communities, skilled nursing facilities, and schools. On the other hand, recent guidance appears to be dissuading people from testing unless it is deemed medically necessary. Earlier this month, we reported that the CDC modified its COVID-19 testing guidance so that it recommended that people not take a test unless they have symptoms. This past Friday, however, the CDC revised the guidance back to stating that people who may have been exposed to someone with COVID-19 need to take the test, even if they do not have symptoms. In the meantime, CMS guidance does not give financial support for testing that is not medically necessary. Much to the chagrin of Democrat lawmakers, CMS guidance has interpreted the CARES Act to say that insurers are required to cover and waive cost sharing only on COVID-19 tests that are ordered by a clinician. That is, an individual may have to pay out of pocket for testing that is requested or required by employers, schools or universities, or for travel, or because an individual may think it is necessary. That's not to say that an insurer will not cover these other circumstances of testing, but CMS guidance says that these non-medical circumstances are excluded from the CARES Act mandate that individuals not pay for tests. Note also that Medicare beneficiaries can only get one test that is not ordered by a physician reimbursed by Medicare. In other testing news, for the first time, the FDA has published a comparative list of the performance of about 60 COVID-19 tests. The list compares the sensitivity or ability of the different tests to accurately detect the virus. Chuck, as of last week, over 95 million tests have been given in the United States, nearly 14 million in California alone, with a national total of nearly 7 million testing positive. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up next, a crisis, an ominous warning. Auditors are ramping up. Details on this latest development in just 60 seconds. Stand by. Imagine the convenience of having access to one of the nation's most respected sources of interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Imagine no more registering for each resource, e-books, coding charts, e-newsletters, blogs, plus live and on-demand webcasts. No hassles, no searches. Now you can have access with an all-access pass from MedLearn Publishing. MedLearn is America's most trusted leader in coding, billing, and compliance for interventional and diagnostic radiology services. Tap into this expertise with an all-access pass, now available with one low annual investment. The all-access pass opens a new window of convenience, giving you complete access to the MedLearn portfolio of resources. Subscribe today for your all-access pass. Get top-rated radiology, interventional radiology coding, and compliance education. Now available online at shop.medlearn.com. Auditors are going full steam ahead using data and analytics to assess overpayments via automated reviews. This is an ominous sign. Here to report our lead story this morning is Sean Weiss with Doctors Management. And good morning, Sean. What do we need to know? Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to all. Audits have resumed, and they're not limited to DME, one specific group of providers, type of contractor, or any one specific locality. Since the announcement of the quote, ramp up by CMS on August 3rd, 
it took less than 12 days for a client of ours to receive a notice of audit via UPIC. At 15 days, a client received 39 automated rack letters with assessed overpayments. At 17 days, a client received an intent to refer to the Department of Treasury, but we already filed a level two reconsideration appeal along with an intent to file sent to the MAC, but the MAC had already recouped. And finally, at 18 days, a client received a cert letter. What's most disturbing is the heavy-handed language used by the UPIC to demand obedience by providers or face severe consequences. The fact is, their new and improved language borders on intimidation and threats against one's ability to earn a living as a healthcare provider. In the conclusion portion, Chuck, of the letter dated August 17, 2020, the UPIC states, quote, Additionally, continuation of identified problems can result in exclusion from the Medicare program in accordance with Section 1128B of the Social Security Act, civil monetary penalties, and or suspension of Medicare payments under 42 CFR Section 405.370. In addition, we remind you that our regulation at 42 CFR subsection 424.535 authorizes us to revoke Medicare billing privileges under certain conditions. In particular, we note that per 42 CFR subsection 424.535, CMS has the authority to revoke a currently enrolled provider's or supplier's Medicare billing privileges if CMS determines a pattern or practice of submitting claims that fail to meet Medicare requirements. COVID not only changed the way we live, it appears it also changed the personality of Medicare's contractors. Black hat auditors continue to shield themselves behind, quote, not medically necessary. But what does it mean? The term refers to what is, quote, medically necessary for a particular patient and entails an individual assessment rather than a determination of what works generally, as cited in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals cited in Kaminsky, defining medical necessity. The term medical necessity shall mean healthcare services that a physician exercising prudent clinical judgment would provide to a patient for the purpose of preventing, evaluating, diagnosing, or treating an illness, injury, disease, or its symptoms, and that are in accordance with generally accepted standards of medical practice. Generally accepted standards of medical practice means standards that are based on credible scientific evidence published in peer-reviewed medical literature generally recognized by the relevant medical community or otherwise consistent with the standards set forth in policy issues involving clinical judgment. Finally, Chuck, understanding clinical judgment is crucial since Section 3.1.1.1 of the Medicare Integrity Manual states, the MAX, CERT, and UPICS shall ensure that medical record reviews for the purpose of making coverage determinations are performed by licensed nurses or physicians, unless this task is delegated to another licensed healthcare professional. RACs and the SMRC shall ensure that the credentials of their reviewers are consistent with the requirements in their respective scope of work. Finally, the MAX, CERT, and UPICS shall ensure that services reviewed by other licensed healthcare professionals are within their scope of practice 
and that their medical record strategy supports the need for their specialized expertise in the adjudication of particular claim types. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Sean. That was Sean Weiss. Sean is a partner at Doctors Management, and he serves as the firm's vice president and chief compliance officer. Coming up next, a new segment here at Monitor Monday called Comment in Context. But first, the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan. Well, hello, Chuck. And uh, as always, we are curious about the results of this survey. Does your organization have a program in place to address food security? Well, lots of responses to this. 21% said, yes, there is something in place. 25% said no, but over half of listeners said, I don't know. And as I often say with the social determinants, what we don't know, we don't know, and that can really hurt us and the funding and financial life, fiscal uh, accountability for our organizations. You might want to pay more attention, folks. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. Here now with comment and context on today's broadcast is Susan Gatehouse. And good morning, Susan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. What an interesting um, web webinar today in terms of audits and the various aspects. Third-party payers are always looming in the shadows, and we did get some reprieve during the per personal health emergency, but or public health emergency. But as Sean stated and various others reiterated, payers are back, and that's been submitted um, in terms of what Sean shared with payers and what they've been or list hospitals, excuse me, and what they've been receiving. So I'm going to take, like Nicole did, the, the reverse of external or the converse of external and talk about internal audits briefly. I think it's prudent for hospitals really to get a pulse check on how they are performing internally on some of these measures that payers are looking at at a nationwide level. As we just heard, medical necessity reviews are targeted. These can be automated on the outpatient side or selected by MSD on the inpatient side. Remember, trends are often noted at the payer level. When it comes to payers, one can often predict the topics of interest nationwide. For example, respiratory failure and acute failure for inpatient claims seem to be a repetitive topic year to year. The OIG target list is a good resource to determine where interests lie as well. In addition, organizations should review patterns with denied claims. This will also assist in identifying trends by payer for potential audits. Once a risk is identified, provide an internal audit to determine the degree of exposure. Are there documentation issues or opportunities? Are there coding education opportunities? Could there have been system upgrades that would have caused issue with payment? As Nicole stated earlier, it's really important to make sure your organization is being paid what it should be getting paid. Significant coding guidelines were implemented for coding 19. It is certain the testing and treatment of this virus will be targeted for outpatient claim as well as inpatient claims. For example, the CS modifier use on the outpatient claims will be easy to detect because CS, the cost-sharing modifier, is discrete data. The additional 20% payment for COVID-related patients for the MSDRG, the guidelines have changed since the implementation of the COVID coding. As of September 1, the patient has to have a positive test that was mentioned earlier. So again, keeping in touch with these guidelines, especially with COVID-19, because they've changed so often. These topics are 
of mind. Let your data do the talking. When significant coding changes and guidelines are implemented, it's not uncommon for audits to follow. I anticipate we will see audits for some of the inpatient changes as of October 1, 2020, as there are a number of add-on payments for new technology. As Benjamin Franklin once quoted, an ounce of prevention is a worth a pound of cure. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Susan, very much. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is the founder and CEO of Axios Solutions. And be sure to attend her complimentary webcast. That's tomorrow, Proven Strategies to Reduce Claim Denials and Accelerate Cash Flows. That webcast is here tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, and it's complimentary. Be sure to register. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Susan Gatehouse, and of course, Sean Weiss reported our lead story. When we're not on the air, you can listen to all the Monitor podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor Shelter in place, everyone, and please join me in wishing a very happy birthday to Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>